We've been in the Gospel of John for a long, long time, uh, almost a year. It's the story of Jesus, and today we're nearing the end of the story. Right now, we are at the cross. And today, we're talking all about the cross. Many of us have grown up with the cross. If you're here today and you've been in church for your entire life, you know about the cross. Some of you here today may not know much about the cross. The question I want to ask today is, guys, do we really comprehend? Do we really understand what Jesus did on the cross? Today, I want us to deeply look at it. I want us to ask, what did Jesus accomplish at the cross? And today, we're going to look at scripture, and we're going to look at some wise words from some Christian thinkers, some different people in the church who have some amazing things because I didn't really feel like my words alone were enough to fully describe to you guys how awesome the cross is. So we're starting in John chapter 19, and we are going to look at verse 15 to start off. Jesus has just received his death sentence. He's about to begin his journey to the cross. So I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, I'm going to walk back there and unmute the video. So I'm going to do two things at once. Um, But pray with me. Dear Lord, God, we thank you so much that you love us. We thank you so much that you care about us, Lord, and we thank you for the cross. And I pray today, God, that you would show us all what the cross is, what it has done, and who you are. We love you so much, God, and we're so thankful for everything that you've done for us. So I pray, God, that you would bless us as we look to you this morning. In your name, amen. Do you want me to crucify your king? The only king we have is the emperor. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took charge of Jesus. He went out, carrying his cross, and came to the place of the skull, as it is called. In Hebrew, it is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and they also crucified two other men, one on each side, with Jesus between them. So here we are at one of the most important moments in history. And what we find, guys, is the first thing that we see Jesus doing on the cross is Jesus carried our sin. I want you guys to understand that today. Jesus carried his sin. We see God, the God who created the universe, the God who created everything, not only carrying this wooden beam on his back, and you have to understand the pain that this caused. This cross 
was weighed at about 300 pounds. Can you imagine carrying anything 300 pounds? And not only that, but Jesus' back was torn to shreds. You see, Jesus was whipped. He didn't do anything wrong. But because he said truthfully that he was God, he was whipped over and over with something called a cat of nine tails, which was a whip with nine ends with giant pieces of glass in it. He was whipped over and over and over again. He was whipped to the point where they knew that if they hit him one more time, he would die. And so just imagine, I mean, when I have a slight cut and anything touches it, I hate that. When the open wound touches anything, it stings. Jesus' entire back was ripped open, and now he's carrying a 300-pound cross, not sound not sanded down, a sharp, spiky, splintery cross into his back. He carried more than wood, though. You see, he carried the sin of humanity. And, and right now, I mean, I just look out in our world, especially our country right now, and I see the sin of humanity. As you guys know, recently we've had a presidential election, and I've seen from the aftermath of it, there are people who are just fighting, people tearing each other apart. I've, I've heard right now currently of, of Muslims who've been attacked, Muslim people in our country who are just trying to peacefully live their lives, but they've been made to fear. People have said, time to get out of this country, go back home. I read about a young African-American woman who was told to go back to Africa just for standing in line in the grocery store. I read about a Muslim man who's been killed, who went to the Wisconsin University. I've heard of an elderly man ripped out of his car and beaten just because he voted for Trump. I've seen on walls graffiti saying things like black lives don't matter or or things like uh, uh, with a swastika on the wall, I've seen people write, make America white again. And I've even seen people threatening to assassinate our new president, people calling to kill Donald Trump. It's, it's crazy, you see, on both sides. I'm not a political person. Honestly, I don't play either side. I see on both sides there is corruption. On both sides there is sin. This election has brought something out in our country which has revealed the darkness of the human heart. And everywhere you look, no matter what side it falls on, people are acting terribly. But you know what? This is just the sins of this month we're talking about. What about the sins of history? Jesus carried on his back the sins of the world. He carried every war, every genocide, every rape, every adulterous act, every act of racism, every act of hatred, every act of violence. Jesus carried, imagine the weight of all of these sins that humanity has done throughout history. And listen, think about you. He carried the sins that you're most guilty of. Think about what are you most guilty of? What makes you, a lot of us sometimes we're good at ignoring our own sin, but when you think about that one sin that you did and it just makes you kind of grimace, Jesus carried that. Jesus carried the sins that you're prideful to admit that you're committing right now. He doesn't need you to apologize for him to carry your sin. He carries the sins of people who don't deserve it. Jesus has carried on his back the sins that made you cry. The things that have caused you to shed tears at night because the things that were done to you are people that you loved. Jesus carried every act of selfishness on his back. 
William J. Chantry says this, as Christ struggled up Calvary's hill and bled upon it, his aim was to eradicate self-love and implant the love of God in the hearts of men. One can only increase as the other decreases. You see, selfishness is a disease that causes us to run to our death because we think there's something we want at the bottom of the cliff. Does that make sense? Don't you see people in your life doing that? They're literally leaping off these cliffs into sin, thinking that there's a pot of gold at the end of the fall, but really it's just death and destruction. Jesus carried hope. Charles Spurgeon says this, if Christ has borne my punishment, I shall never bear it. Oh, what a joy there is in this blessed assurance. Your hope that you are pardoned lies in this, that Jesus died. Those dear wounds of his bleed life for you. He's talking about this blessed assurance that if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that he carried that cross for you, if you believe that he died on that cross for you, if you believe that he took the punishment for your sins, then simply, my friend, you can be saved simply because of your belief in Jesus. You have this blessed assurance. You can be assured, I'm going to heaven. Where did Jesus carry the cross? He carried it to a place called Golgotha, which is known as Calvary, the place of the skull. Now, isn't that interesting that we go to a church called Calvary Chapel? It's one of the reasons I'm proud to be a part of the Calvary Chapel movement. I I love the name Calvary because basically what we're calling ourselves is Skull Church. Really, our our logo shouldn't be a dove. It should just be a giant crossbone skull because it represents Calvary, the place of the skull. It's the place of death. It's the place Jesus went to die on the cross. And on the cross, he dealt with sin and he dealt with death. And listen, Everyone sins and everyone dies. And everyone is afraid of death and everyone is afraid of the consequences of their sin. Jesus died between two sinners so us scared, frightened, sinful people could have hope. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that amazing? People ask, you might be in this room asking, well, does God love me? I I look around at the circumstances of, of my life. There's hard things in my life. There's trials in my life. There's things going on in my life that are very difficult. You don't know my situation. You don't know my family background. You don't know what's going on. Does God love me? Listen to this. Jerry Bridges says, if we want proof of God's love for us, then we must look first at the cross where God offered up his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. Turn to verse 19 as we continue to look at what Jesus did. Pilate wrote a notice and had it put on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, is what he wrote. Many people read it because the place where Jesus was crucified was not far from the city. The notice was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather... This man said, I am the king of the Jews. What I have written stays written. 
The next thing that we need to understand that God did, that Jesus did on the cross, was that in that moment, God became king. You see, the sign read, King of the Jews. And you might think, well, I'm not a Jew, so what's that to me? Well, listen on and you'll find out. You see, why did Pilate make the sign? I think possibly Pilate was mocking Jesus. He was making fun of him because Pilate is this governor who serves Emperor Nero, this king at the time in the government. And Jesus comes, and and Pilate sees Jesus as a threat, so he says, Jesus, are you a king? You've been saying you're a king. And Jesus says, you know, my kingdom is not of this earth, because if it was, my disciples would grab swords and they would fight you, but my kingdom is of a different world. And Pilate says, well, then you're not a real king. You're not a real king, Jesus. So he puts up this sign saying, oh, the king of the Jews, he's mocking him. It's interesting that the Pharisees and the priests hated it because they were the pastors of the day. They were the priests of the day. And and you think they would get it. They say, take it down, take it down. Pilate says, no, it stays. Here's why I think why. I think God influenced Pilate to keep that sign up because that sign was all a part of God's master plan. You see, it's, it's amazing that the, it's, and it's tragically sad that the priests and pastors of the time missed it. See, this was the one that they had been waiting for. If you study the Bible, you'll see in Jewish history, they were always waiting for a king. There was a man named Judah in the early Old Testament. God came to him in a dream and told him, one day, Judah, someone from your family will be the great and powerful king, and he'll bring peace to the world. He'll bring life. He'll bring fruit. He will bring a world where there's no more violence, no more racism, no more hate, no more anything wrong with the world will be gone through this king. And so Judah and Israel waited for this king. And we all know what happened with their first king, Saul. Uh, He was a terrible king. They elected him, and he was horrible. He seemed great at first. He was very tall. Everyone thought he'd be fantastic. But he did not follow God. He disobeyed God. So then the next king, David, came. And everyone thought David was the king who would bring the peace. He would be the perfect king. He was a hero. He defeated giants. He was an amazing person. He was a musician. And he was a great and loving and wise king. But David failed. You see, David committed adultery. David lied. David stole. David killed a man so that he could sleep with that man's wife. David had blood on his hands because he went around and he killed people for his own profit. Yeah, he was in wars that were good wars, but he also was in wars where he could just steal and take from other people. And so God said to David, no, you're not the chosen king. But God said to David, one day that king is coming. Don't lose hope. Don't lose sight. The king of peace, the perfect king is coming. Would it be David's sons? No. King Solomon completely failed. He got 700 wives. He worshiped idols. He had greed and slavery running his kingdom. By the end of Solomon's story, he looks more like Pharaoh than he does his own father. What are we told in the Bible was the criteria to be a good king? It was you had to worship the God of Israel, you had to get rid of idolatry, and you had to be faithful to the covenant. You had to be faithful to God's mission to rescue and save the world through the Messiah. Guess how many of Israel's kings succeeded at that? Zero. 
20 kings of Israel failed. And in Judah, we only had about eight kings who were good kings and 12 kings that were terrible mess-ups. I, I didn't even realize this. You know, you, you read through the Bible and you think, oh, Israel's kings, they're all great guys. No, they weren't. Uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, this, these two kings, if you read in, in the book of Kings, um, chapters 12 through 16, they divide the country in two and they set up idols in the temple. You can see King Ahab and his wife Jezebel worshipped idols. They would kill and steal people that they were the government over. They would abuse and rob people. There was one time where King Ahab saw a guy who had a vineyard, you know, a place where they go grow grapes for wine, and he said, I want that vineyard. And the guy was like, no, this is my family's vineyard. I've grown this for years. Like, this is, this is my family. This is my right. You know what King Ahab did? He killed him, and he took his vineyard. Israel's kings were full of injustice. You can just see down the line, read the book of kings, and king after king after king, they murdered one another, killed each other's families, just like lions do. In the wilderness, when lions uh, killed the head lion of a pride, they murdered the children of that lion so that none of those children could come up and fight against them. This is the way that the kings of Israel acted, like animals. Their life was filled with murder, violence and injustice and then Jesus shows up and Jesus is the perfect king and he's disguised as a peasant he doesn't come in a white chariot he doesn't come into a palace he's born in a stable it'd be like now if our king was born in the back of a laundromat that is how Jesus came in a poor family with poor parents in a poor town. And how does he live? Jesus lives a life of love. He never does anything wrong. He never hurts anyone. He never takes from anyone. He's never selfish. It's amazing. If you read the story of Jesus, and I would encourage you, read the story of Jesus. It'll blow you away to see how perfectly amazing he was in every way. He never sinned. He did nothing but show people God's love. He bent over backwards. Do you have anyone in your life who bends over backwards to show you love. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a friend. Jesus was like that towards a million. How did God become king? How did God become king? Normally, what does a king receive on his head? A crown. What does Jesus receive? An actual crown? No, he, he receives a crown of thorns. Not a crown saying, Jesus, we're making you king. It's a crown of rejection. It's saying, Jesus, you're not my king. And they put, they, if you don't know, they, they, they took thorns from, imagine like a rose bush, and they fashioned it into a circle, and they shoved it into his head to the point where the spikes were touching into his skull, and blood was just streaming down his face. Bill Heibel says this, God led Jesus to a cross, not a crown, and yet that cross ultimately proved to be the gateway to freedom and forgiveness for every sinner in the world. You see, here's the catch, guys. Jesus was not just king of the Jews. He's king of the world. He's my king, and he's your king, and if you're here today and he's not your king, he would love to be your king if you would let him. What kind of king is he? He's the best kind. You see, all throughout human governments, what do kings do? Kings protect themselves. They protect their own rule. They send men into battle in war to die for them. Do you realize that? All throughout history. I mean, yeah, we rewrite history to make war sound like a lot of times it was for these just causes. But in many times throughout ancient history till now, there have been wars fought just for the leader. 
and they send men to die on the battlefield of war for them. What does Jesus do? Does he send men to die for him? No, Jesus the king comes down and he goes to the front lines and he dies for us. What kind of king is that? He's an amazing king. Billy Graham says, God proved his love on the cross when Christ hung and bled and died. It was God saying to the world, I love you. Guys, the cross was the inauguration of Jesus. How many of you guys know what an inauguration is? Anybody? Inauguration? We're going to have one of those soon. We have a new president. There will be an inauguration. It's where they swear you in. It's where they say, we're giving you the power. We're giving you the authority. Listen, on the cross, Jesus was inaugurated of the king of the Jews and the king of the world. The cross was the inauguration of King Jesus and his kingdom. And I I love this picture of inauguration because it reminds me of Star Wars. You guys know I'm a huge Star Wars geek. Anyone excited for Rogue One? Oh my gosh. I'm more excited for that than Christmas. Um, I love Star Wars. So in Star Wars, what you have is whenever there's an empire and that empire falls, whenever there's a new leader inaugurated, the rules change. When Satan became the ruler of this world, the rules changed. Instead of God's perfect plan, the rules became death, destruction, heartbreak, failure, rejection. Those were the rules of the world. This is what's amazing. Just like when Darth Vader and Darth Sidious, Emperor Palpatine, fall to Luke Skywalker and the Jedi and the rebels. What happens? Darth Vader uh, turns to the light side. Emperor Palpatine's thrown down a shaft of light and explodes. Um, Jesus, or when the rebels become the new leaders, the rules change. The rules used to be you could fly around in a Death Star and blow up planets. That was the rule. Now the rule has changed where we bring peace and order to the galaxy. In the same way, Jesus' kingdom changes the rules of sin and death. What were the rules of sin and death before? Death was permanent When you died, you died forever, and you went to hell, a place of eternal destruction. Jesus changes those rules. Look at, I love this, 1 Corinthians. This is so good. This is what the Bible says. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. What does that mean? It means death has no power anymore. It means that you don't have to die. If you're here in this room and you're scared of dying, know that you don't have to die. If you follow Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of death because what do you have? A bulletproof soul. You see, the Bible teaches that these bodies are just our outside tents, but inside of us, who we really are, where our thoughts and emotions and and passion and, and everything that makes us who we are, that's our soul. And if you follow Jesus, your soul can't die. You could get hit by a truck today and you would be more alive than everyone in this room. Jesus tells us that when our bodies fade away, we go to be with him and we get new bodies and our souls live forever with Jesus. I can't wait. We have a bulletproof soul. You don't have to die. Jesus became king and when he did, he changed the rules. Sin has no sting. Death is not permanent if you follow Jesus. Let's look at verse 23 and we'll see what he did next on the cross. 
After the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. They also took the robe, which was made of one piece of woven cloth without any seams in it. The soldiers said to one another, let's not tear it. Let's throw dice to see who will get it. This happened in order to make the scripture come true. They divided my clothes among themselves and gambled for my robe. And this is what the soldiers did. Standing close to Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there. He is your son. Then he said to the disciple, She is your mother. From that time, the disciple took her to live in his home. The next thing that we see is that Jesus lost everything so that he could give everything. And just imagine this scene. Jesus is on the cross, and these soldiers who've arrested him and nailed him to a cross are gambling for his clothes, his robes. Listen, for Jesus even having those robes, even that was a loss. Think about it. For him to even be wearing those robes in the first place was a loss. Because where did he come from? He came from heaven, a place where he was king of the universe, a place where he had royal robes. He came to the earth to save it. He was born in a stable, born into a poor family, born with a mother who was accused her entire life of being a questionable lady because there was no father. He was hated, mistreated, beaten, and spit on. At this time in history, Death by crucifixion, which, which is the way Jesus died, was reserved for only the worst criminals. Large, sharp nails, about 15 to 20 centimeters long each, with a point of six centimeters, were just pushed into the wrists. Not into the palms, as you're typically told, as the flesh of your palm would simply tear from the weight of your body. In the wrist, you see, there's a tendon that extends all the way to your shoulder. When the nails were hammered in, it would break that tendon. What this did was it forced Jesus to use all of the muscles in his back in order to breathe as the air was forced from his lungs by the weight of his torso. In this way, Jesus was forced to support himself onto the single nail carved in his feet, which was bigger than those driven into his wrists, for both of his feet were tied together. Since his feet could not endure for a long time without tearing, Jesus was forced to alternate between that cycle, just back and forth of putting his weight on his feet and then putting his feet, or his, uh, weight on his wrist, just back and forth, every time pulling himself up, the the nails tearing further and further into his wrist. It's believed that the process took more than three or four hours. Imagine the agony of it. Jesus lost everything so that we could gain it all. And we have to realize, guys, that we put him there. And you might say, what are you talking about? I wasn't there. This is 2,000 years ago. No, listen, our sin is what put him there. Jesus died for all sins, past, present, and future. That's why he went to the cross. Our sins are our mistakes. It's the things that we do out of selfishness. It's the things we do out of pride. It's the things that we do that hurt other people. 
Unless we see ourselves standing there with that crowd yelling at Jesus full of anger and hatred for the holy, innocent Lamb of God, we don't really understand the nature and death of our own sin or the necessity of the cross. John R.W. Stott says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. It's heavy. Look at yourself today. Look at the things that you've done. I look at the things that I've done, and I realize I put him there. Fulton J. Sheen says, I wonder maybe if Jesus does not suffer more from our indifference than he does from the crucifixion. Guys, I'm guilty of this. To be indifferent, it means it just means to not care, to not care. I'm guilty. I'm a pastor's son. I've been in the church for 27 years. Do you know how many times I've sat through a Good Friday message about the cross and said, I've heard this before? Tell me something new. Maybe you're feeling that right now. I've heard this. Listen, guys, we have to never let ourselves become numb to what Jesus did. Let it move you. When was the last time the thought of Jesus on the cross moved you to tears? You guys, this is the most significant thing that ever happened in history. Are we really just going to sit on our phones right now? Are we going to listen to what Jesus is saying? I'm moved by Jesus' heart on the cross. Because while losing everything, while he lost everything, he showed his heart to give. He showed his heart to give back in what he did with his mom, in the way that he took care of his mom. Imagine what Mary is going through. Imagine seeing your son like that. None of us have children at this point. Bobby and Cassie have one on the way. Imagine... You, just put yourself in that place. I know you don't have kids yet, guys, but imagine what this Mother Mary is going through. The hands that she held since Jesus was a little toddler are being ripped to shreds. The face that she kissed every day now has blood running down it. And I I just feel for Mary. What happened in the beginning of Mary's story? An angel shows up and says, Mary, God has found great favor in you. Mary's probably thinking, is this what great favor looks like? My son being murdered? Every day of Mary's life was filled with pain. She was a young girl, probably not older than some of you seniors here, who was engaged to a man, and suddenly she becomes pregnant. And the man she's engaged to says, I didn't do it. And Mary says, it was God. God was the one. Do you think, like, would you believe that if your friend got pregnant and she was like, oh, it was God? You'd be like, no, you're, you're lying. You are lying. Mary was called a liar, and probably words that I can't even say on this stage. Mary was called these things by people in her town. Every day was filled with pain. Listen, Jesus in that moment, he could have just sent her away. He could have said, Mary, I know you've had a lot, a lot of hard things in your life, Mom, but right now I'm on the cross. I'm going through pain. No, Jesus cares about Mary's pain. Jesus reaches down to Mary and he says, Mary, I want you to be taken care of. Mom, I care about you. John, my best friend, let my mom live with you. Take care of her. She's your mom now. It's just, it's beautiful. The giving of Jesus. He takes care of his mom. Listen, this is why he died. He gave everything. He lost everything so he could give everything. He died for every tear you've ever cried, every pain you've ever felt. I know there's some of you here today who are feeling a lot of pain right now in your life. 
and you're hiding under this mask, everything's okay, and you're, you're rebelling against God, and, and you don't really want anything to do with him, listen, he loves you. This is why he died. This is why he gave it all. T.B. LeBerg says this, take your wounds to Christ, for he knew all the hurt a soul can endure, and he still loved He was hurt more than anyone has ever been hurt in ways that you can't even comprehend in your human brain. And yet he loved the entire time. Samuel Rutherford says this, the cross of Christ is the sweetest burden that I have ever bore. It is such a burden as wings are to a bird or sails to a ship to carry me forward to my harbor. And that's just, that's just poetry. You see, many see Christianity as a burden, but it's not. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. It gives you purpose. Without it, you're like a bird without wings. If you've lived your whole life wondering, isn't there more? There is. It's Jesus. Do you have problems? I have problems. Jesus died for your problems. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are your healing, his agonies, your repose, his conflicts, your conquests, his groans, your songs, his pains, your ease, his shame, your glory, his death, your life, his suffering, your salvation. Let's continue to verse 28 as we continue to see what Jesus did. Jesus knew that by now everything had been completed. And in order to make the scripture come true, he said, I am thirsty. A bowl was there, full of cheap wine. So a sponge was soaked in the wine, put on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted up to his lips. Jesus drank the wine. It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We all experience thirst. In the human heart, there's this never-ending hunger of saying, I need more. They ask millionaires, I've heard this before, they've, they've interviewed millionaires and said, what do you want now? The answer was always more. Listen, you'll never get enough. You'll never get enough money. You'll never get enough fame. You'll never have enough good friends. There'll never be enough drugs. There'll never be enough sex. There'll never be enough freedom because there's a hole in your heart that only God can fill. Humanity thirsts and in that thirst we suffer. We suffer because we want more. Our heart aches because it's like this world isn't enough. This life isn't enough. I need something else. Listen, Jesus died to put an end to thirst. When he died, he entered into our suffering. He entered in. Guys, we don't only thirst for water. We thirst for God. 
Jesus allowed himself on the cross to not only be thirsty for liquid, he allowed himself to join us in our thirst for something more, in our thirst for God. Did you know that Jesus allowed himself to feel abandoned? What does Jesus say in the other gospels? He's on the cross, and because he is dealing with every wrong thing you've ever done, every wrong thing I've ever done, every wrong thing Hitler ever did, every wrong thing that's going on right now, every wrong thing that's ever gone in the past, Jesus dealt with it. I imagine that on the cross, his eyes flashed and he saw every sin, every crime, every murder, every horrible thing. Can you imagine sitting there, someone strapped you in a movie theater and taped your eyes open and made you watch every bad thing that's ever happened in the universe? What would that do to you as a person? In that dark moment when Jesus saw every sin, he cried out, God, why? Why have you forsaken me? He felt abandoned by God. He allowed himself to feel abandoned. I don't want to ever feel abandoned. I remember when I was a kid, one time, I went to the mall with my parents, and I got lost. And I was so young. I was like three. And I didn't understand. I didn't know who all these people were. And I was like, where's my dad? Where's my mom? And I was just, I was crying and sobbing just because everyone was a stranger and I didn't know where my parents were. It was one of the scariest moments of my young life. That's what Jesus is feeling on the cross. He feels abandoned and he put himself in that position for you. Like Jesus said to the woman at the well, Jesus says, I have water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. It was living water. What living water is, is it's not like some magical holy water that you drink to make your sicknesses go away. What Jesus is talking about, he's using a metaphor. He's saying, guys, if you drink of me, if you become friends with me, if you accept me, then you will never thirst for anything again in your life. As long as you continue to drink from me, you'll be filled. You see, Jesus is the true water. The rest of the world leaves us thirsty. Why? Because it's salt water. What happens when you're surfing and you get a mouthful of salt water? Is it refreshing? Do you want to drink that down? Do you want to just drink gallons and gallons of salt water? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's wet, So if your mouth's really dry, it takes care of that, but it leaves you empty, and in fact, it sucks the nutrients from you. Listen, some of you here today have never tasted Jesus before. You've never tasted the water that he offers. Some of you have, but you've stopped drinking from the well of Jesus, and instead, you're drinking the salty water of the world that leaves us unsatisfied. Listen, Jesus would say to you today, you don't have to drink that stuff. He says, it's finished. I took care of it on the cross. Because God finished his plan to save the world, your slavery to sin is finished. You were once chained to sin. Guys, listen. Humanity was once chained to sin. Jesus broke the chains. So you don't have to stay in your sin. The only thing that keeps you there is if you just stay in the chains. But you can walk away from the chains anytime you want because they're not locked. So why stay in them? So many make the mistake of chaining themselves back up. Don't. Stop drinking the salty water. There's no need to drink it because it's finished. Jesus made a way for you to get the water that if you continue to drink from it, you'll never be thirsty for anything else. Our sins are paid for. Give them up. Let them go. 
Paul of the cross said this, the passion of Jesus is a sea of sorrows, but it's also an ocean of love. Ask the Lord to teach you to fish in this ocean, dive into its depths. No matter how deep you go, you will never reach the bottom. I want to read you guys the story of a girl named Sarah Hartman. Sarah says this, when I was a young girl, I started playing experimental games of truth or dare with a close female friend. This led to sexual experiences. The guilt of these experiences scarred me deeply. I struggled at just 11 years old with tremendous, unrelenting guilt. I can remember the first time I thought of suicide. Dying scared me so much that I told my mom about the truth or dare incidents. Despite my confession my mother's re- and my mother's reassurance, I could not forgive myself. Time passed, but my guilt and shame did not. My freshman year of high school was a major adjustment for me. My guilt and sadness gave way to total madness, and I went into a very deep depression. By the time I confided in someone who could help, I had already begun cutting myself, taking drugs, and was hopeless and suicidal. While my mother desperately continued praying for me, I saw doctors and therapists. They prescribed me all kinds of treatments and medication, but never reached my heart with the mercy of God. I was always a tear-streaked mess at school, barely surviving the day. I was behaving irrational and having abnormal panic attacks. What I had been raised to believe about God and biblical truth was replaced with lies that I could do whatever I wanted and be fine. My sophomore year of high school, I came out as a lesbian, and I kept it from my family. I was telling horrible lies, and I hated my mother, but my mother never gave up on me. She fought for me because I wasn't fighting for myself. Throughout my junior year and senior year, I continued to battle depression, gained weight, believed lies, and lived in the guilt over my past. All this time, I never dealt with the real issue that I needed to know Jesus. I just couldn't accept after what I had done that Jesus loved me. Then towards the end of my senior year, God led me to counseling and teachers who became his healing for me. His truth reached my heart through their love and acceptance. It is through God working a miracle in my life that I am free of who I was years ago. My life is so different now that I can't believe this story is about me. I recently married a wonderful Christian man, and I've never looked back on who I was except to remember God has rescued me. My name is Sarah Hartman, and I am not a fan of Jesus. I am a follower. It's so good. Guys, we just have one more thing to talk about today. So turn with me to verse 31 as we close. Then the Jewish authorities asked Pilate to allow them to break the legs of the men who had been crucified and to take the bodies down from the crosses. They requested this because it was Friday. And they did not want the bodies to stay on the crosses on the Sabbath, since the coming Sabbath was especially holy. So the soldiers went and broke the legs of the first man, and then of the other man, who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, plunged his spear into Jesus' side, And at once, blood and water poured out. The one who saw this happen has spoken of it, so that you may also believe. What he said is true, and he knows that he speaks the truth. 
This was done to make the scripture come true. Not one of his bones will be broken. And there is another scripture that says, people will look at him whom they pierced. And there we have the end of one of the most beautiful stories. Jesus on the cross was poured out so that we could be filled. Why blood and water? The science behind it is because Jesus had bled so much through the whipping, through the cross, 300 pounds on his back, through the crown of thorns. He had lost so much blood. He had gone into hypervolemic shock. And when they pierced him, when they stabbed him in the side, literally the the last ounces of liquid hit the last of his blood and the last of his water drained completely from him. It was all he had left. Oswald Chambers says, when Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross, it was not the blood of a martyr or, or the blood of one man for another. It was the life of God poured out to redeem the world. Guys, every last drop of his blood was spilled for you and me. Why did he pour out? Because he knew that there was nothing inside you that could save you. It had to be what was inside him. Martin Luther says, is it not wonderful news to believe that salvation lies outside ourselves?" And I would agree with that so much because I mess up every day. There's nothing that I can do to save me. There's nothing I can do to pour myself out of my problems. Only Jesus can do it. Our friend Phil Wickham wrote an amazing song called True Love. And there's a line that's so good. He says, the earth was shaking in the dark. All creation felt the Father's broken heart. Tears were filling heaven's eyes the day that true love died. When water and blood hit the ground, walls we couldn't move came crashing down. We were free and made alive the day that true love died. Guys, the truest love the world has ever known died for us, sinners, undeserving, and yet he wanted us. And guys, we have hope. This isn't the end of the story. Next week, we talk about the resurrection. We talk about how Jesus didn't stay dead. He came back to life. And we see what that means for us. We see that because Jesus rose from the dead, we can rise from the death of our own sin. We can rise from the death of our problems. We can rise from the death of everything wrong with our life. And we can live a new life in Jesus. And that's an amazing story, but today we had to look at the cross in all of its brutalness. But we have hope to look forward to. And I want to leave you guys with this. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, wrote a poem called Nearer. He says, if you want to get warm, you got to stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you have to get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Let's pray. Lord, I love you so much, and I thank you that you wrote this story for us. I am so humbled that I even get to talk about it in front of this group of people. I don't deserve that. We don't deserve what you did. But we're so thankful, God, that you were poured out on the cross for love. We thank you for what you did, Jesus. 
We can never pay you back, but we're so glad we don't have to. You've told us we don't have to. All we have to do is believe. If you're here today, with everyone's eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never truly accepted what Jesus did for you, but now you understand that he died for every wrong thing you ever did, that he died because he loves you, that he died because he wants you to follow him, that he died because he wants to make sure that you never have to die, really, that he died so that you could have a life filled with God as your best friend, God loving you. And now you realize that, and you'd like to accept Jesus. You'd like to ask him into your heart. You'd like to have him forgive your sins, and you'd like to follow him. If anyone's there right now, just raise your hand really quickly. Put it up in the air, and I'm gonna pray for you. Anybody at all? Okay. If that's you, pray with me in your heart. Jesus, thank you that you've died for me. Thank you that you forgive my sins. Thank you, God. I accept that you did this, and I'm so thankful. I need you in my life, Jesus. I need you to be my king. I need you to change everything. From today on, I will follow you. Show me how to do that. If there's anyone here with everyone's eyes, continue to be closed. If today, just from hearing about Jesus on the cross again, Maybe you've heard this kind of message a million times, but maybe God spoke to you something today. And maybe you realize that even though you're saved, even though you know Jesus, right now you haven't been honoring what he did for you. You haven't been following him as closely as you should. And today you want to start fresh and you want to rededicate your life to him. And I've done this so many times, but it's good for us to do it. Because it's showing God, God, I want to get back on track with you. I don't want to take the cross for granted. If that's you, and and if you would like to today tell the Lord that you would like to recommit yourself to him, just raise your hand and I'll, I'll pray for you. Is anyone there today? Anyone at all? Awesome. Anyone else? Okay. If that's you, pray with me right now. Jesus, I'm sorry that I've taken you for granted. I'm sorry that I haven't been living completely for you. And now I understand today what you did for me. Help me never to forget it. Help me to never diminish it. Jesus, help me to follow you with my whole heart. Today, I recommit myself to you, your kingdom, your mission, and your love. Thank you. In your name, amen. Amen, guys.